Hello, Rafe Blaufarb is Professor of History and Director and Ben Reader Eminent Scholar in Napoleonic Studies at Florida State University. He's a historian of the French Army and his 2002 book, The French Army's 1750-1820, Careers, Talent, Merit, saw him explore this military machine, not really from a fighting point of view, but more from a social and institutional perspective. Now, the reason this is so interesting is that there must have been something about the changes taking place from the 1780s to the 1790s and afterwards against the backdrop of revolutionary turmoil and socio-economic turmoil and every kind of turmoil you can think of really well there must have been something which created this institution which would come to dominate the european continent through sheer force and tactical nous that brilliant combination but so many questions how much was this the work of napoleon bonaparte what material did he have to work with was it really true that a soldier could find a marshal's baton in his knapsack I studied it um, to get, I looked at the French army as an institution and and actually more specifically the officer corps of that army um, in order to get at, to understand the revolutionary idea of uh, careers open to talent or meritocracy, or if you want equality of opportunity, you know, the revolution, you know, the revolution is known for that. Napoleon supposedly said every soldier has a marshal's baton in his backpack. <laughs> you know, at, well, what is that? What did that really look like on the ground? And what did people um, really say and think about uh, uh, about meritocracy? Um, and so, in some ways, I'm a fake military historian. I'm more of a historian <laughs> of ideas and instant and how those ideas are embodied in institutions. And so, I was looking at. Equality, essentially, equality of opportunity. Uh, in a really interesting field, yeah, yeah. And so, because in, um, I think it's episode two of this podcast, we talked a bit about the um, developments in uh, sort of the end of the old regime and, and then the efforts to try and create meritocracy within the nobility, which is, to modern ears, might sound like a strange kind of social mobility, but, but even that was a big deal. No, I mean absolutely, and look, I mean you're you're British. You're British. You might even be English. I don't know which version of British you are. I think I think I'm both. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, look at look at look at Britain. What um, the military nobility I'm I'm looking at before the revolution? They are what you would call gentry in Britain, right? Okay. It's just that in France, the legal, the legal definition of nobility is much more capacious, and it includes the gentry. Whereas in Britain, you have to be titled, and I, I believe a, a firstborn son, right, or something. It's much more yes. restrictive. Um, there are in in Britain, I think, two hundred truly noble families. In France, there are something like a hundred or two hundred. Well, wait, no, no, there are about probably two to four hundred thousand individuals. I'm not sure how many families, but there are thousands of families. What what the nobles in France, what the military nobles want when they talk about meritocracy and equality, what they want is 
equality for the gentry, because most of them are gentry, they want equality with the titled aristocrats. Okay, yeah. They don't want, they don't want, uh, they want to be colonels of regiments. They don't want it all to go to the Duke of this or the, you know, Prince of that. They want, they want to be able to rise to the highest ranks possible. But in fact, if you look at the French army before 1789, the upper ranks are utterly monopolized by the court nobility, by real aristocrats, you know, who hang out, who hunt with Louis the 16th and play cards with Marie Antoinette. But these were the these were the officers who many of them ran off and became the emigres during the revolutionary period. Is is that right? It turns out that the revolution succeeds in accomplishing something that had never <laughs> that, that, that that had never existed before, which is actual noble unity in France. The nobles, hmm. like basically, let's call them middle class nobles, are always sniping at upper class nobles and vice versa. The revolution forces them all together as just nobles. And they finally are like, oh my God, we have more in common than, than not. But the, the French nobility is terribly, terribly divided before the revolution. That's so interesting. And so much changed by the time you got to 1815 in terms of the French army as, as an institution by then. I mean, is it um, skipping far too much to try and compare and contrast 1792 and 1815 in terms of the, ch- the, the enormous changes that had taken place? Well, um, maybe not 1792. I mean, I, I'd be happy to contrast, say, the army that the revolution inherits in 1789 with the one Napoleon leaves behind. 1792, after all the changes, the army of 1792 is getting, is getting to resemble 1815. The, the last big military reform of the republic actually takes place in early 1796 right before Napoleon invades Italy. And from that point on, from 1796 all the way to 1815, almost nothing changes. Napoleon changes almost nothing in the, uh, in the uh, tactical structure of the army, in, mm. in laws on promotion, advancement, careers, whatever. I mean, he just keeps everything that, had, that was already in place by the end of 1796. Okay. So one thing I really wanted to ask you about was um, source material on individual soldiers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I loved reading Marbeau, for example. His, his little stories were, were brilliant. But when you were doing your research, how how useful was it to look into in individual stories like that and try and get a feel of what it was like to be, you know, on the ground in in the French army at that time? Well, I, I looked at I looked at a, at a few. Um, I, I have to say that um, I, I much, much preferred the, the memoirs of noble officers who had served before the revolution. <laughs> they're more literate. Um, <laughs> they're, more, um, they're more interesting because, you know, even modest officers, officers, you know, noble officers who may, may have served out a military career and retired at the rank of captain. So, very, very mediocre careers, they still felt that it was interesting to write down their experiences, even though those experiences did not involve pitched battles or leading corps into battle. Um, and so you get a real sense through those memoirs of what, what it must have been like to be a kind of, you know, garden variety, you know, mid-level, <laughs> mid-level officer 
And uh, the problem with the, the, the Marbeau memoirs and the memoirs of Napoleon's generals is they are all, all um, political writings. You're a, you're a speechwriter. All these guys are trying to justify what they've done. They're trying to, they're trying to write their own history, you know, to set the record straight, you know, like I didn't lose the battle of Waterloo. It was, was Grouchy or whatever. <laughs> yeah. yes. and, and so they're, they're not, they're, they're, they're not really interested in capturing the flavor of life. They're, they're more interested in going through the, the, the sort of grand tactical details of campaigns in order to ab- absolve themselves of guilt. There seems to be a theme that politics and the military are very closely entwined during this period. And as you say, that's a revolution. Um, but I guess it's just reared its ugly head again, the fact that that so often um, in this period, generals are political and politicians are thinking militarily. Yeah, yeah. The, ni- the nice thing about before the revolution, look, I'm, I, I'm, not a, I'm, not a, a, I'm not an apologist for aristocracy, but the nice thing about nobles and before the revolution is that they were all secure and they felt... And they were all part of a club, um, a gentleman's club, and 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 consequently they uh, they they felt, even even low level officers felt entitled to speak their mind to power openly and honestly, and they do all the time. There's no censorship in 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 there's no political correctness in what they write before the revolution, but after the revolution, everyone's they're watching what they say. You know they. they they, you know, because if you don't say the right word, you know, the right, you know, if you don't say comrade at the right time, you're, mm, yes. you know, and there's a, but before the revolution, there's a kind of within the, within the club, it is extremely open and free ranging discussion that is. And I like that. I like ideas. I like interesting stuff. I mean, Napoleon's correspondence is so boring. It's just a bunch of, hmm. you know, do this, do that. <laughs> You know, I, I'm not really, I don't know. I'm, uh, that's not why I got into history, you know. So you're saying the real, the real life of the period is, is found in, in the, the, yeah, the memoirs. You, you don't have to sort of wade through all the self-justifications and that sounds, yeah, it sounds, <laughs> sounds quite tedious. Yeah. Hey, and um, one thing I was wanted to ask about was um, uh, the Atlantic world and seeing this European conflict in a, a, a broader perspective. I mean, I'm very conscious, for example, that the Haitian Revolution is something that was of huge significance during the 1790s. Um, it was a big deal uh, and, and meant a lot, um, uh, not just to um, uh, in, in terms of colonial history, but in terms of global history. That was a massive deal. So, And, and obviously, you, you've been interested in, in the Atlantic um, elements of this, of this period as well. Um, uh, and I guess based in Florida, you know, it's, it's, you're, you're like, you are on the other side of the ocean. So how, how has that shaped your, your perspective um, about, about the period and, and how important is, is that element? Well, um, I mean, I think that, that, that the, 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 the real lasting significance of the whole Napoleonic episode is actually global and Atlantic not so much European because after Napoleon things more or less go back to the way they were before, you know, revolutions yeah. discredited. There mm. won't be another Napoleon ever again. Really his nephew doesn't, you know, didn't, didn't really cut it, but globally you're right. There are 
to me, the most fundamental thing that emerges globally from, from these wars is the Pax Britannica. Britain emerges from this as the unchallengeable world power and remains that for basically 100 years. And right. that is important for a good number of reasons. Obviously, the, the spread of, you know, whatever we call, you know, whatever we call it, global capitalism, that, that is made possible in large part by the Pax Britannica. Um, in addition, the abolition of the slave trade, that's imposed by Britain on the rest of the world. And that's kind of important. It, no, one, no, one was gonna, no one really cared about abolishing slavery except the Brits. And, and because they emerged victorious, they just force everyone else to, 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 to go along. So that, 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 that to me is the important thing. I mean, really, the Napoleonic Wars are simply the last episode in the Second Hundred Years' War. You've heard that expression, right? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, we're talking about the, the I mean, in my head, and it's I I will be corrected lots and lots on on this, but the the shorthand is it was just a mess. The 18th century was just this cycle of conflict that was that, that ended in treaties that that were never going to satisfy everyone, and so would so you just end up with a cycle of war and 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 so are you suggesting that basically you can view the Napoleonic Wars? As as the, the basically, it took the Congress of Vienna to, to and to figure out how to end that cycle. Is, is that what you're getting getting at? Uh, yeah, I mean, but but I would I would go even further. I would say that um, Britain was in 1815. Britain was perfectly happy to let um, the Congress of Vienna um, play the leading role in ending that cycle on the European continent. But right. if you look at what the Congress talks about. Um, it just doesn't talk about global affairs. Britain in 1815, it, it's in the what my read is that it uh, Britain basically says to the rest of Europe, the globe is ours. Do what you want on the on the continent of Europe, as long as it doesn't hurt us too much. Uh, but but you are not you have nothing to say about what happens in Latin America or Asia or you know any of any of these other places. And so. Britain does not does not uh, even allow the Congress to discuss Atlantic or colonial issues. That's Britain's personal property from 1815 on. The, huh. the one exception is the abolition of the slave trade. Britain uh, forces the, the the participants in the Congress of Vienna to sign a uh, a, a statement um, commi basically committing themselves in theory to abolishing the trade. And then over the next few years, 1817 through the early 1820s, forces all of the different countries of Europe uh, to, uh, to, to, to actually sign treaties, actually abolishing the slave trade. That's the, right. the only global issue Britain will allow anyone to, 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 to touch. And they're only touching it because they have to, Britain simply wants them to go along with the British plan. So this is really putting Napoleon Bonaparte in perspective. You could say that. Um, I mean, we, we've we haven't talked about him much today, have we? Um, uh, as as a person, um, or as a military leader, or as a politician. What's your sense of Napoleon in terms of the historiography and how how he's viewed today? Is it a case of you either for him or against him? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that remains unfortunately uh, uh, a lot uh, a lot about it. I mean, I mean that, that it's kind of hard to avoid that. Even like like if I were to say that, you know, Napoleon's greatest accomplishment. Well, I do say this in my classes that his his lasting achievement that he himself personally is responsible for his most lasting achievement is the independence of of Latin America. Huh. <laughs> because he goes into Spain, kicks over this whole system with no plan, no not, and, and 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 kind of de facto because they're cut off from their king. The, the 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 Spanish American provinces are, are are kind of forced into independence. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And if you look at all of the things he did, he actually does. That's that's about the only lasting thing. I have a vision of a Napoleonic bull in a European china shop. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, I mean, I, to he he he's kind of like Trump in that. His what he does is he kicks over a lot of stuff, and it sorts itself out or not when he's gone. But he doesn't have much of a plan <laughs> for anything. His only plan is you know is is, is what the French call la fuite en avant. That means uh, uh, flight flight forward or retreat to the retreat to the front. You know, <laughs> like just kind of keep keep moving. You know. Don't let the crowd catch up with you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I um I think I really struggle to get my head around Napoleon and and he is such a dominant figure in driving so much of the history of this period and of of the conflict and without wanting to get into counterfactuals um god forbid <laughs> um I, I find it quite refreshing to view the period Kind of just putting him to one side as much as possible, not in a Tolstoy sort of way, but um, because clearly he's, he's an extraordinarily significant figure. Um, but there were global trends taking place at the time, and uh, which which were might just have carried on without him. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, his greatest accomplishment, I mean, not the Latin American one, but his greatest intentional accomplishment is his code. Right, which is adopted by many, many European countries, still in force in continental Europe. But French kings, French kings had been trying to create a uniform code of civil law since the early 1500s. So he doesn't invent this project. The reason why his why people like the King of Prussia keep the code once Napoleon's gone is because it. Um, it, it enhances their power. It enhances the power of the state. And that's what they had always been wanting to do anyway. That's what enlightened despotism was about. And the Napoleonic Code is really essentially an enlightened despot project that the, that the rulers of Europe, they're like, you know, didn't like Napoleon much, but that code, it accomplishes goals we've been uh, seeking to achieve for many, many, many years. So to finish, I want to ask you a question which I don't know if you've been asked before or I'm sure you have actually, but I, I want to know what's next for historians studying this period. So what do you think um, is uh, – everyone looks at the French Revolution and, and Napoleon through the prism of, of their own times, and I'd just be fascinated to know 
where you think we are heading with with this um, uh, as as historians. Um, what's the next big thing that people haven't um, maybe considered so much? Is is there anything? Are there any trends that you see? Um, in terms of those who are um, spending, you know, being not not like me messing around, but <laughs> the actual professionals whose whose job it is to to examine the period, um, it's a little unclear. We're emerging from a period of uh, bicentennial commemorations. Uh, yes. So that 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 long long period has skewed Napoleonic scholarship, uh, particularly. Um, particularly in the Anglophone world, because most Napoleonic historians have have tried their hand at writing a Napoleon biography. <laughs> yeah, but I think that that period, uh, that bicentennial period, is going away, and we will now look. We will now be sort of freed from that 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 uh, that temptation, that biographical temptation, and begin to hopefully uh, start doing doing uh, actual research into new areas. And I can give you a couple, I can suggest a couple of them. Um, oh, yes, please. Yeah. Um, we have no book. There is no book uh, on the civil code. There is no book in English on the civil code at all. Uh, and I do not believe there isn't even a book in French on the making uh, and genesis of the civil code. Uh, that's If that's Napoleon's greatest accomplishment and no one's actually written uh, a history of it, that's kind of... Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, another issue: the Concordat, Napoleon's um, settlement with the Catholic Church. Yes, there is one book in French on the Concordat. There is no book. There is no serious study in English of the Concordat. Another massive accomplishment. Napoleon remakes the French uh, justice system, the whole network of courts and legal institutions. That has never been written about in English either. I'm not even talking about the whole area of uh, state finance. Napoleonic finances are have really barely been studied, uh, certainly not in English and only barely in French. Um, yes. we, could, we can go on and on and on. In a word, um, we have, scholars have, ever since Napoleon's time, they've been obsessed with Napoleon's military actions and military accomplishments. <laughs> yes. And have neglected his 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 civil his civil ones, but I, I I would posit that his military accomplishments are all dust in the wind. Uh, nothing lasts from his wars. Everything's rolled back. Um, but what remains of uh, of Napoleon's uh, time in power are uh, the institutional and legal changes he makes. Um, and, and 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 strangely, those have not been studied. We're just so fascinated with the, the glory and the drums and the trumpets. But but actually all that stuff in the in the in the longer in, in the longer term view didn't really matter. And that is quite the note to end that interview on. If you've got a view on that final comment of Rafe's, I've stuck it on the Napoleonic Quarterly's Facebook page, so please do chip in and reply and put your view forward. In the meantime, you'll next hear Rafe uh, in episode 17 on the state of the army in early 1796. 
Now, the podcast is going to take break of maybe a couple of weeks or so, a mid-season break before we return for 1795. So hang in there, bear with me, and uh, we've got that to look forward to. Until then, goodbye for now.